listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. So right away, we see Isaiah setting up for us the context and the surrounding culture and circumstances that he's in as he receives this vision. If you look at verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, we see the very situation that Isaiah is in. You see, King Uzziah, when he died, that marked the end of what was for uh, the nation a long period of prosperity. Uh, You see, at this point in Old Testament history, the nation of Israel had already divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom of Judah. So the northern kingdom had many evil and horrible kings. They were riddled with these men who led people into idolatry away from the Lord and continual disobedience and sin. The southern kingdom wasn't much better, though it did have a few good kings who would destroy those idols, restore temple worship, and lead people into national prosperity. King Uzziah was actually one of those few good kings, and he reigned for 52 years. Yet at the height of his uh, greatness, so he and his leadership led to the fortification of the the borders, the building up of the armies and restored temple worship. And, And under his leadership, they saw an increase of national prosperity. But at the height of all of this, Uzziah grew in pride and entered into the temple to offer incense on the altar. Now, this was an act that was reserved by God exclusively for the priests. The priests tried to warn him and said, don't do it. The Lord will not be honored by this act. But Uzziah grew angry because of his pride. And so the Lord punished him with leprosy and he lived the rest of his life until his death, excluded from the house of God. So not only did a good king ruin his legacy with disobedience at the end of his life, but the people around him, the people in the nation, were disobedient and unfaithful to the Lord. In just the chapter before, Isaiah chapter 5, God describes the people as a vineyard that he has planted. God says, I've planted you here. I've given you good soil. I've taken care of you. And yet all you produce for me is sour grapes, wild grapes, fruit that is useless for me. And so God sees that instead of the people being faithful to him, they continue in their disobedience. And instead of good fruit, they produce bloodshed instead of justice and outcry instead of righteousness. The exact opposite of what God had called them to be as a people. So you can sense now a little bit of of the circumstances and the culture and the despair that Isaiah was feeling. And then God in his grace opens up the earthly veil and invites Isaiah into a vision of himself. And so as we turn back to the text, we'll see three results when we, like Isaiah, behold the greatness, the great faithfulness of God. So first, God's faithfulness to his promise helps us, one, to see things clear. Verse 1 to 5, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. 
And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So the vision of Isaiah begins with a beholding of God seated upon a throne. You see, the death of King Uzziah hasn't left God in a state of panic or worry. He's not pacing around his throne, scratching his head and trying to figure out a plan B. No, no. Isaiah sees God as the true king seated upon his throne, high and lifted up. His throne is exalted above any other. Isaiah notes this. He says, God is high and lifted up. No other king is on his level. God alone is completely sovereign and God alone is completely in control. There's nothing on his level. Isaiah then sees before God these angelic creatures called the seraphim. In the intense brilliance of God's presence, they're covering their faces and covering their feet. And as they're flying... They're crying out this song, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. They're singing this song one to another, this continuous repetition of the holiness of our God. Now, what does holiness mean? What's being communicated to us in this song? Well, we've seen how earlier we established that the circumstance in the culture surrounding Isaiah is that one of unfaithfulness unfaithfulness of the king, unfaithfulness of the people. And so the message of Isaiah, and as we see the book unfold, the message of Isaiah is a call towards renewed covenant faithfulness. That it's a call to return to being a light to the nations of justice and righteousness. That the nations around Israel might see and make much of the name of God. That they would see a people devoted to God and wonder, maybe this God is worth serving. But that's not, what's, that's not what is happening. Instead, the people are unfaithful. And so we see this larger call throughout the Old Testament. God is saying over and over again to his people, be holy as I am holy. And so this word holy, what it means for us, especially in this context, is is rather than the common understanding of holy being moral perfection and purity, holiness conveys a meaning of a return to covenant faithfulness, a devotion and a commitment to his word. And so, though the circumstances and situations surrounding Isaiah is that of unfaithfulness, this is what God is communicating. That God is perfect in his devotion and commitment to his promises. That though the king has failed, God will not. That though the people are disobedient, God is devoted to his word. And look at the extent of the expression of his faithfulness. Isaiah says that just as the train of his robe fills the temple, the glory of God, the expression of his holiness, fills the earth. There is not one square millimeter 
of the earth over which God is not devoted to seeing the fulfillment of his promises. See, what God is saying to Isaiah and to us is that earthly kings may be frail and people disobedient, but God is committed to seeing his word pass, not only in the land of Israel, but in and through all of the earth. There's nothing and no one that can stop God and his word. Amen. Praise God. But as we come to grips with this reality, that God is devoted to his promises, that God is devoted and committed to his word, we, like Isaiah, start to see things clearly. And we say, woe is me. Why? Because if God is devoted to his promises, and God is committed, as the prophet Amos says, to seeing justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, then that's terrifying news for us because we're going to be like those twigs that are swept away in the torrent of the stream of justice. You see in the light, the exposing light of God's glory and, and his devotion and faithfulness to his promises, our sin is brought out to the surface and exposed. And so we say, woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the amongst the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So like Isaiah, when we see the faithfulness of God, we see ourselves and our culture clearly. It's like one of those vanity mirrors that as you look, it lights up and magnifies all the pores and the imperfections on your face. The light of God's exposing glory and devotion to his promises exposes all of the imperfections of our souls, it brings out all the sin and exposes it to us, helping us to see it clearly. And so we stand before God individually and as a culture, as those who have rebelled against his commands. Now, it's easy to simply look beyond ourselves and to look at the culture and, and agree, yes, the culture is sinful. We, we're quick to point out the materialism, the brokenness in families, in, in marriages, the sexual immorality that is rampant in our culture and our media. And to simply look at that and say the culture, yes, the culture is sinful. But if we have taken time to see and behold the glory of God in the display of his faithfulness to his devotion, then we are confronted with the sin in our own lives as well. And we will be desperately broken by it. You see, when we begin to measure ourselves and our actions, not by those around us, but we begin to measure it by the standard of God's perfect faithfulness and devotion to his word, even our outwardly righteous actions are exposed for their sinful motives. You see, the standard of God's faithfulness exposes our motives. It exposes our, uh, our desire to exalt ourselves when we exercise generosity only in public ways. It, it exposes our desire to satisfy our carnal lust for watching those movies for cultural research. It exposes our desire to feed our pride when we only serve in the church in positions of leadership when others can see us. You see, the, the glory of God and his perfect standard of devotion to his word exposes not only that which is clearly sinful, but 
pierces to our hearts and points to our hearts' motives, even in what is outwardly righteous. So our souls are laid bare because of the glory of God's faithfulness to his word. John Calvin puts this beautifully. The the quote is up on the screen. He says, until God reveals himself to us, we don't think of ourselves as men. Instead, we think of ourselves as gods. But when we have seen God, we then begin to feel and know what we are. The presence of God and our approaching him is the destruction of our flesh because it shows that we are nothing of ourselves. It shows that we are nothing in ourselves. This is the true humility that results in our hearts when we see God rightly and it exposes our hearts in the culture around us. You see, when we're in our workplaces, when we're in our families, we recognize that the reality of sin shows us that we are no good at all, that we are all, we are all sinful and condemned before the standard of the perfect faithfulness of God. And so we see things clear. Our, faithful, our faithlessness and our sin and the sin of the culture is exposed in stark contrast to who God is. And so the faithfulness of God to his promise helps us, one, to see things clear. But secondly, it also helps us to see God's grace. Look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, and that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Immediately after the cry of Isaiah saying, woe is me, we see the initiating grace of God towards the brokenness and repentance of his servant. It is the faithfulness of God that even motivates and initiates the gracious act of forgiveness. We see in the book of Deuteronomy, God lays out the terms of his covenant with his people. He says, here are the blessings for obedience, and yet here are the consequences for disobedience. And after laying that out, God through Moses says, when you do sin... And you will, and the curses come upon you. When you do sin and chase after idols and pursue disobedience and satisfy your own sin, and and you're scattered and exiled into all the nations, but then you remember my word and you turn to me and repent, I will show you mercy. See, God is faithful to his promise. And when we recognize the depth of our sin and we turn to him, In repentance, God's grace is there to meet us. Take a look even at the instrument of God's grace. One of the seraphim, having taken a burning coal from the altar with tongs, touches Isaiah and declares this, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. When we turn to God, recognizing our sin in need of his grace and mercy, He takes something else that was offered upon an altar to purify us. The blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
Throughout Old Testament history, all the sacrifices made upon an altar, all the the lambs, the goats, the bulls, all of it was pointing to Jesus Christ. You see, all of those sacrifices were never effective to take away sin and to give us a new heart that delighted in God. The writer of Hebrews actually says that all that these sacrifices could do and all that they served to do was to remind us of the depth of our sin. They were never effective to take away sin and to give us new hearts. But they were all pointing to one that could. It was all pointing to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who in the laying down of his life and the shedding of his blood secures for us eternal redemption. You see, God takes the blood of Jesus Christ and purifies us and declares the same thing, that your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. The blood of Jesus Christ purifies us. What grace God offers to us. You see, God isn't obligated to do this. He isn't coerced to offer us a way out. If God was to remain completely faithful, he, had, he would have no reason to forgive us, but he shows us mercy and grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We see that it's only by the initiating grace of God that we're even saved and purified at all. You see, there was nothing Isaiah could do except cry out, in repentance and saying, woe is me, cry out in brokenness. There's nothing that we can do. It's nothing that we do that purifies us except our throwing ourselves onto the grace of God given to us and expressed to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ and his purifying blood. And so now we pursue obedience in joyful, in joyful response to the faithfulness of God. Because God extended to us grace in the midst of great failure. And so instead of being obligated and driven to do things to earn grace, but because of God's grace, we gather together as believers. Because why? We want to celebrate the grace of God that we have received together. We confess sin and, and, and to one another. We keep each other accountable. Why? Because we want to experience the grace of God together. We, we show love and, and care for the broken and for the least of, uh, of those around us. Why? Because when we were broken and while we were at the bottom, God showed us grace. So grace now motivates us into joyful obedience. So when we behold the faithfulness of God to his promise, we see clear, we see God's grace. And then finally, when we see the faithfulness of God, he helps us to see God's hope. Verse eight. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, 
in houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. And so Isaiah hears the call of God saying, who, who will go for us? And Isaiah with great excitement and joy says, here I am, send me. And we just said this just a moment before, but when we experience the grace of God, we obey in joy and we obey with great gratitude. Grace motivates joyful obedience. So Isaiah receives the commission. He's given the message that he's to preach to the people. And, and I know what you're thinking. You're saying, Shayon, you said that this point was that we see God's hope. We, we've just read the message and it, it doesn't seem very hopeful. Well, stick with me and stay with me. We're going to get there very quickly. You see, the message of Isaiah, he is, the, the message that God gives to his prophet Isaiah is one of warning the people of coming judgment and wrath. You see, the book of Isaiah, like we said, overall is a call towards a return to being faithful to God's word. This is God calling out to his people and saying, come, return. And one of the ways that, that Isaiah is commissioned to do this is to warn them of, of the consequences of disobedience. God had warned them in the days of Moses that faithlessness and disobedience would result in exile and the scattering of the people amongst the nations. And so God is keeping his word. God is keeping his word. God had warned them, if you obey, you will be exiled. And so God is warning them again. What grace that God doesn't, uh, doesn't pour out judgment right away, but that he's waited since the day of Moses to, to bring about a final warning to his people. And so Isaiah's message then is, is called to dull ears and to harden hearts and to see that judgment will come and that even those that do remain will endure great suffering. As we read Old Testament history, we see that the Lord is sovereign to see this come to pass. Uh, the people never turn from their sins. They continue in disobedience. They assume because God has been patient with them, they, they count that as, as God not caring about his word. And so they continue in sin. They continue following idols. They continue uh, giving their hearts to, to other gods. And so God being faithful to his warning and to his promise brings about the nation of Assyria and the nation of Babylon to bring swift judgment on his people. Yet even within this message, heavy with warning and judgment, God, because of his devotion to his promises and his love for his people, gives us great hope. Take a look at verse 13, the final verse in this chapter. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Now God didn't include these trees as, as random examples. We believe firmly uh, in the inspiration and inerrancy of God's word and we believe that each word is there for a specific reason. You see, 
Middle Eastern terebinth and oak trees have this amazing ability that even when they've been cut down and burnt beyond all hope, they still have this ability to see new shoots rise from its stump. There's going to be a picture on the screen of of this kind of tree where even though it's cut off and burnt and and there's no hope, God says there's, there's a shoot that can come from it. These specific trees have that amazing ability. So God is saying, judgment will come and it will fall hard on you. And yet, even then, there will be hope. That though it seems like the people of God will be cut down like a tree, uh, thrown aside and disposed of, yet even from the stump that remains, there is great hope that can rise. And so we see this. We see that there's a glimmer of hope that God, even in his judgment, sovereignly keeps for himself a people that are faithful to him. That though the larger tree is cut down and and disposed of, God is faithful to keep a people that are devoted to him. Uh, We see this time and time again throughout the Old Testament. Uh, A great example is that one of Elijah. Uh, he, He produces great miracles by the power of God and expects a great revival. But instead, the people come after him to kill him. And so in his despair, he, he asks for the Lord to end his life. But the Lord encourages him and says, there's still 700 that have not yet bowed their knee to false idols. God always keeps a people that are faithful to him. And yet, Even through the book of Isaiah as it unfolds, God is pointing to more than simply a people, a faithful remnant that he keeps for himself. God is pointing to the true Israel, Jesus Christ. Turn to Isaiah chapter 11. We'll just look at the first two verses there. I'll read it. This is a a passage that oftentimes we use at Christmas because of its messianic prophecy, uh, appointing to Jesus Christ. But look at the words that Isaiah uses. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. God is pointing in his faithfulness to to the true Israelite, the only one who obeyed completely and was fully devoted to God the Father. He was the only one who lived like this. You see, every command Jesus obeyed with great joy and gladness. Every trial he endured with great patience. Every temptation he submitted to the word of God. Jesus is who we could never hope to be. And so Paul, referring to this in his letter to the Romans in chapter 15, says that Jesus Christ, as a shoot coming out of the stump of Jesse, rises up and is like the hope, a light of hope for all mankind, for Gentile and for Jew. How does this come about? Paul explains that we are grafted into him by faith. And then we receive all of the blessings of his obedience. So by faith, we are grafted in to the true Israel, Jesus Christ. So even in the midst of a message of of warning and of judgment, 
God shows us hope and demonstrates his faithfulness and commitment to his promises and his love for his people. That though we would fall and fail, Jesus Christ would come and live in perfect obedience and delight in God. He is our hope. You see, we've been joined together with Jesus Christ. And so we no longer receive wrath and judgment, but because we are in him, we receive all of the blessing, all of the favor because of Christ's obedience to God. He's the hope for for the nations. You see, when we recognize that there's no life apart from Jesus Christ, it gives us an urgency and gives us the clarity of the gospel call. And and our invitation then is to come, to repent, to believe, and find yourself hidden in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this last one, this was greatly encouraging for me as I was preparing. He's the hope for the endurance of the church. You see, the kingdom of God is not like an orchard where trees are scattered about a a wide field, each sustaining itself and, and growing on its own. You see, the church is a branch grafted into the one vine, the true vine, Jesus Christ. And so the hope for the church to endure through the ages isn't in the strength of the church, but because it finds his strength grafted into the one vine, the true vine, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus cannot fail. Our hope can never fail. Amen? And so beholding the faithfulness of God enables us to see ourselves clearly, see our culture It helps us to see our need of a Savior. It helps us to see the grace of God offered to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But more so, it also helps us to see and celebrate the hope that we have in Jesus Christ alone. These three realities become even more clear as we behold and look at Jesus Christ and behold his glory and faithfulness. Like we said right at the beginning, this was the whole point of the message, that beholding God, beholding God's great faithfulness to his word and devotion and commitment to his promises and to his people produces in us great faith. And this faithfulness, the faithfulness of God climaxes in the person of Jesus Christ. He is faithfulness defined, faithfulness in the flesh. And so we, it is Jesus Christ that has saved us from our sin, has drawn us in and joined us with him. And so we need to give ourselves over to beholding Jesus Christ. And how do we do that? God says it's most clearly revealed to us in his word. God invites us to come and to look and to seek him in the glory of his written word. And so we must commit to be disciples of the word, committed to study it, to love it, to grow it in our affection for it. We take this very seriously here at Harvest in our communication of of what a disciple of Jesus Christ looks like. This is the first God time. We need to be disciples committed to seeing ourselves in the word, to loving the word so that we might behold Jesus Christ. Loved ones, we... It's no surprise if we find ourselves weak and frail in our faith if we're not in the word of God. 
How can our faith be strong and and emboldened if we aren't beholding the glory of God's faithfulness in his written word? So look to the Bible. Read his word. See his faithfulness. I'll be honest, it's hard. It's like looking for a treasure buried in a field. I I didn't come up with that analogy. Jesus did. He says that we, we dig It's going to be hard work. We're going to sweat. We have to give away all our possessions to to go after this, giving away of all things so that we can pursue after Jesus Christ. But be comforted. The glory of God is there in his word. And so give yourself to it. Because as we look to the word, we see the glory of God and our our sin is exposed. And so we're driven then towards repentance and our need for Jesus Christ. We confess to one another because we know that there's grace available. and, And then we pursue in joyful obedience the will and the word of God because we know that there's hope for us to endure because we're not working in our own strength, but because we are grafted into the true vine, Jesus Christ. So loved ones, beholding glory, beholding Christ changes us. And this is what Paul says in his letter to, the second, uh, letter to the Corinthians, his second letter. In chapter three, he says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So as we behold glory, as we behold God, as we behold his faithfulness and commitment to his word and to his people, we are radically changed. Our sin is rooted out. We are driven to hope in Jesus Christ. So I'll close with this. Close with this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He puts it together amazingly, uh, eloquently, and, and clearly for us. He says this, Remember, therefore, it is not your hold of Christ that saves you. It is Christ It is not joy in Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It's not even faith in Christ, though that may be the instrument. It is Christ's blood and work. Therefore, look not so much to your hand with which you are holding on to Christ. Look to Christ. Look not to your hope, but to Jesus, the source of your hope. Look not to your faith, but to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. We shall never find happiness by looking at our own prayers, our doing, our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. Are you you finding yourselves weary and and faltering in your faith? Then I I suggest that maybe we are looking too much at ourselves and our circumstances. The call of faith is behold your God. See Christ in all of his glory, his faithfulness to his word, his commitment to us, his people. And see your faith strengthened and grown, be encouraged, not by how, as, as Spurgeon says, how your hand holds on to Christ, but how Christ holds on to you. So this is the call this morning, church. This is the call to us. This is the call to, to my heart. 
that we would look to Jesus Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So with that, let's pray together.